Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's web radio, and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. This is the show where you will hear everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment for it. And welcome to Psychiatry Today again. Uh, this is Dr. Scott Bay, and this is the May 28, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope you had a good Memorial Day weekend. Hope it was enjoyable and safe for you. We're going to start off today's show talking about an aspect of the economy that affects mental health issues. Uh, the recession that started late 2007 certainly had devastating impacts on people's mental health, and this is common in any kind of great economic depression. Of course, the Great Depression in the late 20s uh, was notorious for seeing people who were ruined economically uh, jumping to their deaths, unfortunately, but uh, even though things uh, are certainly different in this modern day and age, the Great Recession that we only just came out of several years ago is still having an impact. And there's a study showing that people who went through foreclosure on their home have a higher risk of suicide. Losing a home to foreclosure uh, may boost a person's suicide risk, according to this new study that compared this type of information pre and post the Great Recession. And the trend seems to be most prevalent among middle-aged adults. Now, suicide rates do go up during recessions, but between 2006 and 2007, there were an increase in middle-aged suicide rates. They soared, in fact, to levels that exceed that of elderly Americans, which is the group that typically tends to have the highest suicide rates. The research team tracked United States suicide rates before and during the housing meltdown that pre precipitated the so-called Great Recession. It seemed common sense that foreclosures might be playing a role. This middle-aged group has a lot of debt, especially their mortgage. It's the most likely group to have a mortgage and the one that's gearing up for retirement. So a foreclosure or simple loss of equity could be financially devastating because they have much less time to recover than a younger person. Furthermore, the perceived sense of helplessness might far surpass what other age groups might feel. The middle age have a lot more to lose. These findings, by the way, if you're interested, were published in the June 2014 issue of the American Journal of Public Health. 
According to the Washington, D.C.-based American Association of Suicidology, the most recent information shows that in 2010, more than 38,000 Americans committed suicide, with the highest suicide risk seen among middle-aged men and women between the ages of 45 to 54. The overall figure represents a 3% increase over 2009. Suicide is now the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. In 2010, males were nearly four times more likely to complete suicide than females, though women were three times more likely to make a suicide attempt. In the new study, researchers examined United States death statistics for the years 2005 through 2010, compiled by the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. During that time, suicide rates shot up roughly 13%. That information was paired with household socioeconomic information provided by the United States Census Bureau, as well as with public foreclosure records collected by RealtyTrack. United States foreclosures hit an all-time high of 2.9 million in 2010, coinciding with a rise in suicide rates, most notably among 46 to 64-year-olds, which experienced the biggest recession-linked bump in suicides. After looking at the situation state by state, that is the tentative conclusion they reached that the foreclosure crisis could very well be the reason for the suicide uptick. Lots of research has been done on recessions and mental health, but it mostly looks at how unemployment rates correlate with suicide. But the Great Recession was unique in that it was perhaps the worst housing crisis we've ever seen. So it's important to note that this finding of a foreclosure-suicide connection held even after accounting for other pieces of the economic puzzle like joblessness, poverty, and divorce. There's no question that the recession, financial strains, foreclosures, unemployment, all of that has had something to do with the rise in suicide over recent years. But at the same time, it's important to know that suicide rate goes up and down over time. And during the 1990s, it went up, and that had nothing to do with foreclosures. The point is that suicide is not something simple. It's not necessarily an outcome due to one negative event or series of events. It's often a tragedy resulting from a whole bunch of things going bad at once. Financial strains, which often contribute to relationship strains, are certainly significant precipitating events. Yet the great majority of people who experience a foreclosure survive and thrive, while others who have no such experience do not. So the situation is complicated. Those who may be concerned about loved ones at risk of suicide should be on the lookout for key warning signs. 
They can include dramatic mood swings, expressions of uncontrolled anger or recklessness, feelings of anxiety or withdrawal, substance abuse, and or verbal or written threats to harm oneself. And I should say here that uh, all too often people know someone who did this and they'll say offhanded things and the person will just kind of let the comment go. Uh, that could have been a cry for help. You should never be afraid to bring up the issue of suicide with someone for fear that talking about it will be making it more likely that they're going to commit suicide. Quite the opposite is true. Uh, the more someone who is feeling that desperate has the opportunity to talk to someone about it and someone who cares about them and who will urge them to get help, it's uh, actually the less likely that they will uh, commit suicide. Now, next up on tonight's show, a follow-up, another follow-up on um, the item on the show a few weeks ago about the latest study documenting the increased risk of death for people who take prescription sedatives and prescription sleeping pills. There has been a sharp rise in emergency room visits connected to abuse of the sedative Xanax, according to a new study, which finds there's been a steep increase in the number of Americans being treated at hospital emergency departments for the abuse of Xanax, or the generic name is Alprazolam, that, according to federal officials who reported this last Thursday, the number of emergency department visits related to abuse of Xanax climbed from more than 57,000 in 2005 to nearly 124,000 in 2011. That, according to the United States Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. Now, their data are already three years old, so you can imagine if it went from 57,000 to 124,000 from 2005 to 2011, uh, you can only imagine what it is here in 2014 so far. This report highlights the need to educate people about the dangers of misusing or sharing prescription medications and the importance of properly disposing of unused medication. And the reason the uh, SAMHSA spokesman said that is because the biggest source that people uh, have to get these type of medication is friends and family members uh, who have it sitting in their medicine cabinet, maybe not taking it regularly or even if they are, uh, and it winds up missing mysteriously or maybe not so mysteriously. In the United States, alprazolam, or again, that's the generic name for Xanax, was the most commonly prescribed psychiatric medication in 2011. Not an antidepressant, not a painkiller, not a cholesterol drug, Xanax, the most commonly prescribed psych well, psychiatric medication that wouldn't include cholesterol, but uh, I'm sure if you looked at all pharmaceuticals uh, altogether, cholesterol drugs would be very much up there. But 
The fact that it's more commonly prescribed than antidepressants, I think, is quite remarkable. Now, as to the rank overall, the, the article does cite that statistic. It's 13th overall for all prescription medications in 2012. And this does not come as any surprise to some experts who were quoted for this article about the impact of Xanax abuse. And I think what we're going to do is we'll save getting into that for when we get back from our first commercial break, which it's time to take right now. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott here on America's Web Radio, and I'll be right back after this short break. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Today's consumers find find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's FoodLink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you. We are talking about studies showing a marked increase in emergency room visits due to abuse of the sedative Xanax. And right before the break, we we're talking about how data from 2011 shows Xanax was the most commonly prescribed psychiatric medication. And a couple of experts have weighed in on the findings of this latest study. Uh, Dr. Eric Collins, an addiction psychiatrist who is physician-in-chief at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut, uh, a very well-known addiction treatment center, said in 2010, Xanax alone accounted for more than 10% of all non-medical use of prescription medications in the United States, and this illicit use more than doubled in five years. 
he pointed to an even bigger threat, saying that Xanax abuse is especially concerning in light of the dramatic rise in non-medical use of opioid painkillers like oxycodone, sold under the brand name Oxycontin, and Vicodin, because these increases in non-medical use parallel the rapid rise in accidental overdose deaths in our country. And uh, what he's referring to is that prescription drug overdose deaths uh, have overtaken that of illegal drug overdose deaths and have, as he says, risen rapidly uh, in, in our country. And as he's saying, if you look at what are the drugs in these accidental multiple drug overdose deaths, usually it will include a painkiller and a sedative like Xanax or a sleeping pill like Ambien. Think Seymour Hoffman, uh, <clears throat> Whitney Houston, Heath Ledger, etc. And for all those notorious celebrity multiple drug overdose deaths, there are many, many dozens of anonymous people who die the same way. Now, uh, he goes on to say, the combination of Xanax or other similar sedatives with opioid painkillers and or alcohol is particularly dangerous because the combination can cause individuals to go to sleep and then stop breathing. Uh, what th this refers to is that alcohol alone, if someone takes a lethal dose, can interfere with breathing. Same with sedatives and same with painkillers. So you combine all three and you can easily see how someone will just pass out, stop breathing, never wake up. In total, there were about 1.2 million emergency department visits related to prescription drug abuse in 2011. Everyone with prescriptions for sedatives and opioid painkillers should lock them up while they are in use and dispose of them when there are leftover unneeded supplies. Information on disposal can be obtained from local police departments, many of which will accept these medications for proper disposal, and you can also ask your pharmacy. Now, I don't know how it is where you live, but here in the metro Atlanta, Georgia area, every few months uh, there will be a Take Back Saturday program that goes on where uh, local police precincts will have people bring in pres unused prescription drugs uh, for disposable. Uh, absolutely no questions asked whatsoever. Uh, people can just bring in their unused medication for proper disposal. And this is something that is very, very helpful for the public at large in terms of safety and public health as well as for law enforcement, because the less painkillers and sedatives that are not going to be used that get disposed of, the less likely those drugs are going to be abused or misused, and therefore the less likely 
there will be adverse outcomes from said abuse, like car accidents um, and accidental drug overdose deaths. Now, the report from SAMHSA about ER visits due to Xanax is based on data from their 2011 Drug Abuse Warning Network, which monitors drug-related emergency department visits nationwide. Definitely the take-home message from this uh, is don't take Xanax at all. If a doctor offers you a prescription, turn it down. If you do take it or if you do have any, uh, keep it secure, keep it locked up, keep it safe. And if you stopped taking it, get rid of it. Uh, But don't flush it down the toilet. Uh, Previous research has documented pharmaceutical residues showing up in rivers, streams, and reservoirs, water supplies. Uh, Either find out when there's going to be a take-back day for pharmaceuticals in your local community, uh, call your local police precinct, or check with your pharmacy. Next up on Psychiatry Today, an article called Eight Tips for Dealing with a Depressed Spouse. Now, when I saw this article, I said, well, this is a very important issue. This is something that I definitely want to present to my listeners because in my experience over the years, I hear a lot from my patients and their spouses about the impact depression can have on spousal marital relationships. And it can be devastating. Um, It can lead to the non-depressed spouse becoming anxious and or depressed. And it can also, unfortunately, all too easily lead to divorce. Uh, And I've seen it happen any number of times. So let's go over this and maybe this will help one of you listening, or maybe you know someone who's going through something like this, and you can uh, get them to listen to this podcast and hopefully make use of some of these tips. When one spouse has depression, it can put a strain on a marriage. Living with a depressed partner who is often unhappy, critical, and negative isn't easy, and at the same time, it may also be hard to persuade a husband or wife, to get help. Depression varies tremendously in severity, but it has many behavioral impacts that can profoundly affect all significant relationships. Depression influences mood, thoughts, sex drive, sleep, appetite, and energy levels, all factors that could affect a marriage as well as disrupt home and family life. So, of course, marriages have been broken up by depression, but the condition can also be uniting. There are plenty of instances when a couple faces the illness together and it becomes another one of life's many challenges. Here are some tips and advice for when one spouse has depression. The first is try to stay on the same team. Try to keep in mind, although it can be difficult at times, the enemy is the illness and not the spouse with depression. Team up to tackle depression rather than allowing it to drive a marriage apart. 
Actively work to help your spouse get better, whether it's taking a daily walk together, because exercise definitely helps relieve depression, providing a ride to a doctor's appointment, and that may be good because if you go with your spouse to the doctor's appointment, uh, perhaps you may be able to meet with the doctor, with your depressed spouse, give the doctor feedback on how their treatment is progressing or not, and give the doctor important insights into the person's uh, illness and their behavior as part of their illness. And also, ensuring that medication is taken. Now, this is a delicate issue. Uh, many people really do not like it. When their spouse says, did you take your medication today? Um, it is often that phrase, did you take your medication today, unfortunately, is often used as a criticism, as an accusation. For example, there is a coarse remark uh, or something is forgotten uh, or something is confused or misplaced. Anything that the spouse who is under care of depression does wrong and the other spouse will say, hmm, did you take your medication today? Uh, this does not go well at all. This is not, does not go over well at all, I can assure you. So instead, it would be good to make sure the non-depressed spouse couches the idea of ensuring that medication is taken in a caring way, I love you, I want you to feel well, that's why I'm trying to make sure you take it. <clears throat> now, another tip is don't get bogged down in stigma or angry feelings. Certainly easier said than done. Dealing with a partner's depression can provoke anger and resentment, especially if one spouse is often making excuses for the depressed spouse's social absences, or if some household responsibilities might need to temporarily shift. When a depressed spouse acts withdrawn and unaffectionate, a couple's sex life and level of intimacy will suffer. There is also a sense of shame attached to having a mental health disorder, which can prevent a depressed spouse from seeking help for a treatable illness. Another tip is help your spouse get a proper diagnosis and also proper treatment. The illness might prevent a depressed person from recognizing that they need help or seeking it out. So it's often the non-depressed spouse who will express concern and suggest an action plan. To broach the topic, say, I love you, but I hate watching you suffer. Depression is a common problem, and you shouldn't be ashamed of having it. So let's find out more about this illness together. And I have to say I agree with that approach. I think it's a wonderful way to not make it criticizing the other person, but again, focusing on the illness, focusing on that you care deeply about them and uh, want to help them feel well, rather than making it a personal attack. We'll continue with these tips for dealing with a depressed spouse after our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. I'll be right back.
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Healthcare Consumerism Radio. Learn, connect, share. Join us every Friday at 11 o'clock to learn all those confusing issues around healthcare, Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid. We'll help you find the answers, help you stay in compliance. Join us Friday at 11 o'clock. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you here on America's Web Radio. We're talking about eight tips for dealing with a depressed spouse. The next one is to show receptivity. Encourage a depressed spouse to talk about the way he or she is feeling, thinking, or acting, and listen without passing judgment. Again, easier said than done, but would go a long way if you're able to do it. If someone is in a bad depression, you might hear things that could really upset or surprise you. For example, a depressed spouse might question their love for their partner or interest in staying together. Defer decisions about your marriage until after a depressive episode. It's very hard for the non-depressed spouse to take listening to things like this and to understand that the comments are born out of severe depression, which can rob someone of any kind of loving emotion whatsoever. They also may cause the depressed spouse to conclude that they are worthless and therefore cannot fathom that their non-depressed spouse would want to be with them and feel that they would be better off without them. Another thing that the article doesn't mention 
that a frank discussion with your depressed spouse may uh, uh, turn up that is quite frightening is they may admit to thoughts of suicide. Um, but again, as I said before in our earlier uh, discussion where we talked about uh, suicide, it is a relief for the person who has these thoughts to talk about them, and it is not going to make them more likely to commit suicide. In fact, it would decrease the risk that they would do so. <clears throat> Another tip is offer to go to a doctor's visit. Now, the article talks about this tip separately. It was included in the um, staying on the same team tip, but as far as going together to the visit, it's incredibly helpful to see a depressed patient along with their significant other because the spouse is often a wealth of information and observation. And I find this to be so true in my practice, even though I'm only doing medication management, not therapy. Certainly, the non-depressed spouse's observations on the uh, behavior and response to treatment of the depressed spouse, or lack of response as the case may be, is very valuable and helps guide treatment decisions. The non-depressed spouse is likely to be the first to notice behavior changes in a loved one, and these insights are valuable during treatment. Another important tip, keeping in mind the rest of the family, not just the two spouses, is to give children and teens age-appropriate information. Depression not only affects a marriage, but it also impacts the entire family. Kids can often sense when something is wrong. In a sensitive and honest way, talk about the illness with kids so they don't feel afraid or worried. Some depressed parents say that feeling an obligation to their children, for example, to get up early in the morning and take them to school helps them to function better. I think that while young children certainly do not need to have a, a frank discussion of their parent having an illness such as depression and really are not capable of processing information like that, certainly uh, older children uh, are aware that something is wrong, that the parents uh, aren't living up to their responsibilities, maybe aren't taking care of themselves, maybe not participating as full members of the family. So I think with older children, uh, especially older teenagers, uh, it is important uh, not to ignore the issue and not to uh, pretend as if nothing is wrong because kids know when something is wrong. <clears throat> Another tip is to be patient with the treatment process. Patience is key because a certain amount of trial and error in terms of finding the best treatment is to be expected. But the good news is that doctors can often help people with depression feel better and function better with the combination of medication and talk therapy. With time and treatment, depression can lift. However, it is often the case, unfortunately, that a patient may have to go through several medication trials before they find one that is both effective and physically tolerable for them to take. And so a great deal of patience is often very necessary. 
And finally, the next tip is understand that depression is usually an episodic illness. When a spouse has depression, that person goes through bad periods and good ones. There is sometimes a role for couples therapy. A couple may have to work together to improve their relationship, but this should be done at a separate time when the spouse is feeling better. In the meantime, the non-depressed spouse might need to turn to a trusted friend or therapist for emotional support when feeling overwhelmed or aggravated. But the fact that depression is episodic is a very important concept. Even when someone comes out of one significant episode of depression, it's important to keep in mind it may come back again. Well, I think that was actually, you know, a very helpful article. And in terms of what may help people who are going through dealing with a depressed spouse, uh, lots of those things are very helpful. Again, being supportive, working together as a team, working with the doctor, um, and, and patience. Uh, lots of patience. That's what it's going to take. Now, next up on Psychiatry Today. This article is called, These Five Emotions Are Damaging Your Health. And it's about the physical damage to the body that emotions can wreak. So this caught my eye because, as you always hear me talk about in the intro to the show, one of my goals for the show is to decrease the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and as part of the stigma and ignorance and prejudice about psychiatric illness is the mistaken notion that it isn't real illness or disease or sickness. Uh, so when I see of an article that so beautifully documents the physical impact that various different types of mental distress can have, uh, to me, that helps drive home the point that so-called mental illness is very much physical and very much has a severe impact on the body. It is not possible to separate mind from body, and uh, I don't think it's a useful distinction. It's, it's all part of the same entity. So let's get into the article. Though negative feelings and feelings in general are a powerful force and an inescapable part of life, they can have quite a significant effect on your health, especially the negative emotions. And so now we're going to talk about these five common emotions that can have a negative impact on your well-being unless they're coped with properly. And the first is anger. Studies have shown that anger can actually lead to heart attacks and an increased risk of cardiovascular problems. Perhaps not surprisingly, as a sudden burst of anger can cause an over-the-top surge of chemicals throughout the body like adrenaline and noradrenaline. During a bout of anger, the brain's amygdala overreacts. The amygdala is a small portion in the middle of the brain that's basically our fear center. 
Blood rushes to the frontal lobe, the area in charge of reasoning. This is why anger can often be blinding. You've heard the expression blind with rage. And it can lead you to throwing a phone at the wall, for example. But along with this impaired judgment, anger also brings with it dangers to your cardiovascular system. There are a number of physiological changes that occur in our bodies when we get angry. And further research is needed to figure out exactly how anger can have such a strong impact on our health. But what researchers found was that two hours after an angry outburst, people had nearly a five-fold increase in heart attack risk and a three-fold increase for stroke. Although the risk of experiencing an acute cardiovascular event with any single outburst of anger is relatively low, the risk can accumulate for people with frequent episodes of anger. And the next health-damaging emotion is loneliness. Loneliness may also be just as dangerous as a sudden outburst of anger. It tends to be a long-term condition, like depression, and is a risk factor for early death. Feeling lonely could increase your risk of premature death by 14%. Loneliness is a risk factor for early death beyond what can be explained by poor health behaviors. It's important to maintain social relationships with friends and family and to even make small talk with new faces every once in a while. Older people who are lonely tend to have higher levels of stress and less of an ability to adapt to difficult situations if they don't have anyone to lean on. Loneliness can increase levels of stress hormones in the body like cortisol, which affects sleep quality and increases blood pressure. Isolation and solitude can also weaken your immune system. So maintain your friendships and social bonds. It will do you good. Now that may be all well and good for people who have social contacts and relationships already, but for those who don't, it certainly takes a lot of work to fight that loneliness. I think one thing the article doesn't mention, but uh, what may be helpful to get someone out of the cycle of loneliness is volunteer. Uh, find out what you have an interest in and passion for and sign up to do volunteer work. You're likely as not to find like-minded people. And even if you don't make new friends, you will be around people. And you'll be around people who are positive, who are interested in helping those who need help. And that type of social contact, again, even if it doesn't lead to lasting relationships, is bound to be helpful. We're going to take another commercial break, and we'll be right back with more on emotions that damage your health. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's Breaking News 
industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, annual publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook. A free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that allergy season in Georgia is year-round? Beginning in July through November, ragweed is the predominant pollen. But February through May tree pollen causes allergy symptoms. Grass pollen occurs from mid-May through the beginning of July. If you suffer from daily nasal congestion, sneezing, runny nose, headache, ear clogging, or popping, or a chronic cough, these symptoms may be due to allergy and not infection. You should also think of allergies if there is no fever, chills, or colored mucus. Treatment should include nasal salt water sprays over the counter or antihistamines that do not cause drowsiness. If you have persistent headaches, a decrease in your sense of smell, or nosebleeds, you should see an ear, nose, and throat physician. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. Hello, this is Michael Daly with Atlanta Healing Center. We know that addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is a family disease. Addiction is a treatable disease. We have a caring professional staff with over 30 years experience to help you and your loved ones in your recovery. You can reach us at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about five emotions that damage your health. We already talked about anger and loneliness before the break. Next up, stress and anxiety. The article lumps them together as one health-damaging emotion. It's almost common knowledge at this point that stress has a huge negative effect on our bodies. Stress almost always manifests itself through physical symptoms, migraines, grinding teeth, lightheadedness, nausea, exhaustion, heart palpitations, insomnia, a decreased or increased appetite, just to name a few. Constantly worrying and carrying a burden of stress has been linked to early aging, high blood pressure, chest pain, and a weakened immune system. People who are stressed are less likely to take care of themselves, to sleep and eat properly, and thus are more likely to get sick. According to the American Psychological Association, stress is a complicated condition that is closely tied to a myriad of health issues. Stress can make existing problems worse. In one study, for example, About half the participants saw improvements in chronic headaches after learning how to stop the stress-producing habit of catastrophizing or constantly thinking negative thoughts about their pain. 
Chronic stress may also cause disease, either because of changes in your body or the overeating, smoking, and other bad habits people use to cope with stress. Job strain, high demands coupled with low decision-making latitude, is associated with increased risk of coronary disease, for example. Learning how to reduce your stress could be one of your best investments. Exercise, eating healthy, and giving yourself me time, as well as a chance to relax and unwind, will go a long way. The next health-damaging emotion is shock. Now, this is not one that we think about too often, perhaps, but shock or trauma can cause both short-term and long-lasting consequences on both your mind and body. Shock typically involves an unexpected situation that throws an unprepared person off their feet and leaves them unable to cope or react properly. Psychological trauma occurs in the brain and can actually change the structure of the brain in the area where the frontal cortex, emotional brain, and survival brain converge. Physical symptoms that occur due to shock or post-traumatic stress disorder include sleeping and eating disturbances, sexual dysfunction, lack of energy, and chronic pain. What the article doesn't mention is fairly obvious. When someone is subjected to some sort of shock or trauma, the sudden surge in stress hormones can also bring about uh, the same types of damaging things that we talked about with stress and anxiety or even anger, but in uh, a very concentrated, very acute and short period of time. Sadness is the last health-damaging emotion, of course, uh, the one that you would most often think of besides uh, anxiety or anger. It's called heartbreak for a reason, because when you're experiencing deep grief or sadness, it takes a toll on your health too, especially the heart. One study from St. George's University of London found that it is actually possible to die of a broken heart. Bereavement increases your risk of a heart attack or stroke by nearly double after a partner's death, according to the research. We often use the term a broken heart to signify the pain of losing a loved one, and the study shows that bereavement can have a direct effect on the health of the heart. Uh, another uh, research article that, I'll, that isn't mentioned in this article that I just went over with you, but that is well known, found many, many years ago, uh, more than 20 years ago, in fact, that if you look at the immune cells in the blood of those who suffered a recent bereavement, they do not function properly compared to people with similar age and health who have not undergone a bereavement. So sadness and bereavement definitely does take its toll on the body. Uh, it affects the functioning of the heart and indeed our entire immune system. Uh, I think the bottom line for avoiding the health consequences of all these health damaging emotions is 
to get help, to get counseling, to get therapy. Um, anger can be dealt with, anger management, and sometimes uh, if there's a psychiatric problem underlying the anger, sometimes medications can help. Uh, you know, the article talked about things to do to counteract loneliness, and we talked about what to do about anxiety, uh, shock or trauma, certainly. Counseling uh, to get through that is very important, as well as depression, uh, which often but not always needs to be treated with medication. Counseling uh, most often will alleviate depression as well. Now, kind of going along with the article that we just talked about, here is an article that talks about how mental illness itself in general not just the negative emotions that we cataloged earlier, but mental illness itself is linked to shortened lifespans. Serious mental illness can take between 7 and 24 years off of a person's life, which is similar to or worse than the impact of heavy smoking, according to researchers, who found that many mental health diagnoses are associated with a drop in life expectancy as great as that associated with smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or more. There are likely to be many reasons for this. High-risk behaviors are common in psychiatric patients, especially drug and alcohol abuse and smoking, and as well they are also more likely to die by suicide. The stigma surrounding mental health may also mean that people aren't being treated as well for physical health problems when they do see a doctor. The research team examined 20 studies that looked at the link between mental illness and death rates. The studies included more than 1.7 million people and 250,000 deaths. These are very large sample sizes and that means the conclusions are likely to be robust. Researchers found that major mental disorders can greatly shorten people's lives. For example, the average life expectancy was 10 to 20 years shorter than normal for people with schizophrenia, 9 to 20 years shorter for those with bipolar disorder, 7 to 11 years shorter for those with, with recurrent depression, and 9 to 24 years shorter for people with drug and alcohol abuse. By contrast, heavy smoking shortens life by an average of 8 to 10 years. While mental illness appears to greatly increase the risk of premature death, it's not considered a major public health priority, unfortunately. One of the reasons is the tendency to separate mental and physical health, which, as I told you about before, in my opinion, doesn't make any sense. Many causes of mental health problems also have physical consequences, like we talked about in the previous article that we went over. And mental illness worsens the prognosis of a range of physical illnesses, especially heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. Lots of research has documented that 
when there is depression along with diabetes and heart disease and cancer, outcomes of those diseases are worse. Unfortunately, people with serious mental illnesses may not access health care effectively. These findings should push governments and health officials to place a much higher priority on mental health. Now, these findings were released. The study that we just talked about was released online on May the 23rd in the journal World Psychiatry. I do want to address one of the ugly realities the article about this research discloses, which is that even when people with serious mental illness go see the doctor, there may be discrimination on the part of medical personnel, and they might not get all of the help they need. Uh, This is a very ugly reality, but many times when other medical personnel see uh, a patient with chronic psychiatric illness, they attribute much of their symptoms either to the psychiatric illness itself or to side effects of the psychiatric medications that the person takes, which of course can often be extremely difficult. And unfortunately, uh, those side effects can sometimes include diabetes, um, which can lead to lots of cardiovascular complications. Not only that, but it's extremely common for psychiatric patients to smoke, uh, especially patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, uh, whose medications sometimes make them feel uh, very dull mentally and lethargic. Uh, Many of these patients smoke because they find that the nicotine helps counteract the side effects of their psychiatric medications. And so they typically can become very heavy smokers. And uh, unfortunately, some health practitioners see this as uh, an inevitable part of the person's psychiatric illness and might sometimes be less uh, likely to encourage cessation of smoking because they, uh, for some reason, might not think the psychiatric patient is as likely to be motivated to quit smoking and comply with uh, all types of health recommendations, not just uh, to quit smoking and to eat better and to exercise. So that will wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening to the information that I very much enjoyed bringing to you. And I hope that until we get together again next week, that you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.